This week on the Myths and Legends podcast, we're continuing the story of Beowulf as he trudges into the swamp to fight Grendel's mother. And you'll see why decluttering your house every now and then might just save your life, especially if your house is a stinking monster lair at the bottom of a cursed lake. The creature this time is one that you actually do want watching you sleep, which is a nice change. This is the Myths and Legends podcast, episode 60B, The Depths. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories you think you know, but with surprising origins. Others are stories you might not have heard, but really should. This week's episode is brought to you by Lincoln and the Bardo. From George Saunders, New York Times bestselling author of 10th of December, comes Lincoln and the Bardo his long-awaited first novel featuring none other than Abraham Lincoln. A moving father-son story, Lincoln and the Bardo breaks free of its historical framework into a supernatural realm that's both hilarious and terrifying. It's on sale now, published by Random House, available wherever books are sold. Previously on the podcast, we met Beowulf, a Gitish hero from modern-day Sweden. He went to the Danish kingdom of Hrothgar because Grendel, the monster, was terrorizing Hrothgar's mead hall. Beowulf killed Grendel, Everyone partied, and then that night, another monster showed up and killed King Hrothgar's best and most trusted warrior before fleeing into the night. Real quickly before we get today's episode started, I've long suspected that I was mispronouncing Geats, and I've heard that in Old and Middle English, it would be closer to Geats. Thanks to Kristen for reaching out with help on this one. I really confused people when I switched the Irish pronunciations mid-story when I did the Toyn, so I'm just going to keep calling them Geats for this story, just for simplicity's sake. Hrothgar was sobbing when Beowulf finally arrived. The Gitish leader found himself facing dozens of axe-wielding Danes when he opened the door, but they relaxed when they saw it was the one who had killed Grendel. Beowulf and the others had been given a separate place to sleep from the Mead Hall, maybe to honor them, maybe because the plot demanded Beowulf not be present so he can drag this fight out to the Dark Forest. Who knows, it's anyone's guess. Hrothgar cursed the monster when he was finally able to speak again. The men and women of the hall stood with spears ready, facing out into the night. The door had, once again, been torn off. So until they moved somewhere else, they all had to be vigilant. And they couldn't move somewhere else until the king got it together. Sybar, this medieval Danish door maker must be cleaning up with these monsters hanging around. Hrothgar said he knew it. He knew she would come. He hoped she wouldn't, but now his best man was dead. Beowulf turned to him. She? Hrothgar took a long swig of mead and said, yes. He had heard from his subjects in the uplands far from the country of two monsters. One large and hulking they called Grendel, but the other was smaller, faster, and deadlier. They somehow knew she was a she, and these two otherworldly marauders stalked the moors together. Hrothgar had no doubt that this was Grendel's mother, and she had come to take revenge for her son. She lived a few miles from the hall in a frost-stiffened wood, shrouded in mist among the wolves. In that wood, there's a lake. Legend has it that she lives in that lake, but it's a dark and terrible place. I can imagine Beowulf staring in disbelief, saying, wait, seriously? You knew there was another one of those out there and that she would come and take revenge for her son and you still let everyone drink and party and sleep here? I mean, you just gave me turn-by-turn directions to her house. Rothgar took another drink. Yeah, he said, that's a pretty substantial lack of judgment slash plot hole that will force this epic battle out into the dark forest. So... 
since you're here and you're kind of the guy for this, what do you say about about killing Grendel's mother? Beowulf said. He took a deep breath. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Some had stayed back with a small guard, but most had found their weapons and armor and rode out with the king. It was about three or four in the morning when everyone finally set out, tracking the deep grooves in the frozen ground where Grendel's mother's claws had dug into the path. Bits of Ashera, the man who was killed, were already covered in freshly fallen snow. There was no moon, so only their torchlights illuminated the path, and only so far, off in the distance, somewhere, they could hear the wolves howling. They rode until they reached the forest. The trees gnarled and frozen. Beowulf rode out in front. And as they approached, the Giedish leader heard yelling from the back. And he heard men draw their swords. Someone, something, was watching them from the forest. Beowulf heard them drawing back their bows when he saw it. The torchlight had barely grazed Ashera's severed head, sitting on a spike just inside the forest. It looked like a face gazing out at them because it was a face gazing out at them. Beowulf held up his hand and walked over to it. He wrapped it up in a cloth and narrowed his eyes as he looked into the icy darkness of the forest. The party rode deeper and deeper into the forest, and eerie and otherworldly mists shrouded the paths ahead. The sounds of wolves howling and of other things lurching and breathing somewhere off in the darkness echoed through the night. Soon, they saw it. The lake. It was such a hateful and vile place that even the trees strained to grow away from it. The torchlight skimmed the surface of the lake, but it was too wide to see the end of it in the night. They could see what was in it, though. They saw something move on the surface. Then another thing. Then another. In ripples and waves, they could see serpents writhing just below the surface, so much so that the lake seemed to froth with their movement. They stood on a cliff overlooking the lake, and the others stepped back until only Beowulf remained. Then the churning at the surface stopped and it became still, until, off in the distance, a much, much larger serpent, a dragon, grazed the surface of the water. Even with its iron-like scales rushing past, it was a full 30 seconds before the dragon disappeared back into the depths. And then, a few seconds later, it floated to the surface, dead. When its corpse rolled over, they saw a single arrow sticking out of a gap between the scales, smog-style. The warriors were so awestruck with the water dragon that they didn't notice Beowulf see the gap in the scales, pull out his bow, mentally calculate a shot, and then fire an arrow into the water. Beowulf put away his bow and started taking his armor out of his pack. There was no point in putting it off. He had a job to do. A quest that would lead him into the murky, haunted waters that were infested with snakes to fight a murderous shadow demon. So basically like a normal Tuesday for a Scandinavian epic hero, on the cliff overlooking the lake, Beowulf talked to Hrothgar and the others and designated where all of his money would go if he never came back. And he legitimately thought he might not come back, but he had thoughts on that and we'll talk about that in just a second. Then he walked up to the cliff, turned around to everyone, smiled, and dropped off backwards. They rushed to the edge and saw Beowulf dive into the dark, murky, serpent-infested waters. We'll 
we'll see Beowulf break a world record and make several poor choices at the bottom of the lake. But that will be right after this. This week's episode is brought to you by Loot Crate. I tweeted out a picture of my desk the other day, and people complimented all the cool, nerdy things on it. From the Planet Express ship to Doctor Strange to a Hellboy piggy bank. I'd like to take credit for the quirky, nerdy style, but those all came from Loot Crate. You probably know Loot Crate is a monthly subscription box service filled with pop culture items from your favorite TV shows, movies, and games, all for less than $20 a month. You get all this loot, and you don't even need to fight a monster and his mom. Each month there's a different theme, with exclusive stuff you can only get through Loot Crate. Check it out. Whether you're getting it for that geek in your life, or you are that geek, it's an awesome little surprise every month. February 2017's theme is Build, and features Mighty Morphin Power Rangers, my personal favorite comic book hero, Batman, Lego Dimensions, and Tetris, as well as the monthly t-shirt and pin. And you have until February 19th at 9pm Pacific to subscribe and receive this month's crate. But after the cutoff, that's it. It's over. So don't wait. Head to lootcrate.com legends and enter code legends to save $3 off of any new subscription today. That's lootcrate.com legends, code legends, for $3 off any new subscription. This week's episode is brought to you by Casper, an obsessively engineered mattress at a shockingly fair price. My wife and I have Casper, and we love it. And when it came time for our little guy to move up into a big boy bed, we didn't even think twice and got him a Casper twin. Even though we could try it for 100 nights risk-free, and they would pick it up and refund us everything, after one night we knew that it was perfect. He sleeps so much better now, which any parent of a toddler will tell you is very important for everyone's quality of life. Time Magazine named the Casper one of the best inventions of 2015, and you'll see why if you try it out. It's memory foam, and it creates a sleep surface with just the right sink and just the right bounce. I was surprised that a mattress could fit in a box that small, but it's really the best one I've ever slept on. They have free shipping to the U.S. and Canada, so you don't even have to leave your house and go lay in an awkward furniture showroom. And, with over 20,000 reviews and a 4.8 star rating, it's quickly becoming the internet's favorite mattress. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com legends and using code legends. Terms and conditions apply. Alright, now back to the show. As Beowulf dove deeper and deeper into the dark waters, maybe he was scared when he felt serpents moving along his legs in the complete darkness, which, sidebar, diving into dark, snake-infested waters might just be my darkest fear. I don't know. Maybe Beowulf knew he was going to a certain death. As a warrior of his time, he told himself that avenging loved ones is always better than mourning. He had thought that, for all of us, living means awaiting our end. Whoever can, should win glory before death. Because while death would come for all, attaining glory and doing great things in his life was a way to prevent being forgotten. Truly gone. But really, Beowulf was probably just bored. Because he dove in almost complete darkness for over 12 hours. Now, I've really relaxed with my criticism of these stories. I mean, a lot of them are fairy tales. But this is something that continues to bug me about folklore. I don't know why drowning doesn't kill people, and it drives me crazy. Yurash Mataro, Lancelot, though I kind of worked a way around with that one, Beowulf, and countless people captured by water creatures in the Creature of the Week segment don't die when they really should underwater. And I get it, this is folklore, and I'm being too hard on it, but it is such a basic thing. No human can breathe underwater, and yet it's hand-waved with absolutely no explanation every time it pops up. Anyway, that's enough of that. Also, before moving on, Unferth, 
Feeling bad about mocking him the other day, gave Beowulf his family's legendary sword, named Hunting. It will be noteworthy later. Surpassing the current record of 22 minutes for holding one's breath by about 14 hours, Beowulf had been swimming down into the darkness, his bubbles the only indication that he was still descending. Then, without warning or fanfare, his foot touched it, the slimy, swampy bottom of the lake. He had made it. Now where was the monster? He turned his head, and his vision might have been obscured by his long blonde hair if it wasn't completely dark. Miles and miles of water. How could he ever find her? Then he saw something faint, off in the distance, like, like lanterns, obscured by the murk. It was only far too late that he knew what he was looking at. There were eyes, glowing red in the water. Beowulf knew that it, that she, was coming right for him, and that she was too fast. He was both out of his element and out of his depth. And yes, I'm extremely proud of both of those puns. He braced for impact. She bowled him over and he tumbled head over feet in the water. He felt the knives of her fingers stabbing repeatedly at his stomach. But his chainmail held. When she stopped stabbing at him, he felt her iron-like hands grab his shin. And then his whole body cracked like a whip as he got up to her speed. And she pulled him as fast as she could through the darkness. A few times Beowulf tried to force himself to his feet, to pry himself from her grasp, but he couldn't make it up there. He didn't want to take out Unferth's legendary sword and risk losing it in the water, because then where would he be for a fight? Then she let him go. Well, she threw him. She flung him into the darkness, and all he could see was her eerie, smiling face as he struggled to regain any control over his movements. He finally came to a stop and kicked toward her in the water, but he found he wasn't going anywhere. He was being sucked backwards, away from her, and into a cave. He saw her eyes close, and he lost her in the darkness. Beowulf was trapped in a current, and from what he could tell from the sharp rocks on all sides, he was being whipped through a tunnel. Also, there were sea beasts in the holes lining the tunnel, taking pot shots at him with their tusks, because why not? But still, his chainmail held. He was yanked by the rushing water for the length of the tunnel, hitting the rocks at every turn until, unexpectedly, he saw light, and, in almost that same instant, he was flying through the air. He tumbled down sharp rocks and came to a final, painful stop in a shallow pool. He pushed himself up and looked around. He was in a massive underwater cave, miles below the surface of the lake. The stalactites above him had a phosphorescent glow that illuminated the cavern. And Beowulf, rising to his feet, could see a pile of gold and treasure along one of the edges. Water was coming in in streams from holes like the one he had just come through, and I know the physics of it don't make sense, but he just held his breath for 14 hours, so let's not get nitpicky. Blood trickled down his armor, from the cuts and the scrapes, from where he had been bashed on the rocks, and he looked around. He had a bad feeling about this whole place. He looked to the water inlets above thinking that Grendel's mother would be coming through one of them. And he almost missed the growing shadow, rising from the pool in the center of the cave, right behind him. Not quite as tall as Grendel, her son, she still towered over Beowulf, who was standing tired and hurt in the middle of the underwater cavern. In the glow from all around, Beowulf could see her, the hungry and angry swamp hag. She seethed with anger. Beowulf had killed her son, and he would pay. Beowulf took out Unferth's legendary sword, the one that had never failed anyone who wielded it, and ran in the opposite direction. There was a dark corner of the cavern, and Beowulf disappeared into it. Grendel's mother was confused for half a moment, 
and she didn't see Beowulf coming until it was too late. She didn't know that she had followed Beowulf into a corner with a rocky outcropping when Beowulf had climbed quickly and jumped off. With Unferth's legendary sword above his head, he flew through the air towards Grendel's mother. He had calculated it correctly. He would bring the sword down on her head, cleave it in two, take a short nap, and then swim back to the surface for all the gold and glory and mead he could handle, which was a lot. As he brought the sword down on the monster's head, surprising her with this super cinematic death move in her own home, he congratulated himself with just how classic Beowulf this whole scenario was. As the sword connected with her head, however, he did not see the familiar sight of an enemy's head being cut in half under his blade, but of Umferth's supposedly legendary sword harmlessly bouncing off Grendel's mother's head as Beowulf's jaw dropped in midair. Almost simultaneously, Grendel's mother brought her right hand up and smacked Beowulf right out of the air. He flew like a ragdoll across the room and landed with a thud on a pile of gold in the shallow pool. Beowulf rose to his feet and tossed the sword aside. It wouldn't do him any good here. He would need to fight with his bare hands. He turned to look for Grendel's mother, but she was already in front of him. Then he was on the ground. Grendel's mother was impossibly fast and flitted to Beowulf. She knew that the one who had killed her son was tricky. She would have to pass on savoring this and just straight up murder him. She hunched over his body and began stabbing relentlessly at his chest, shoulder, and stomach. Luckily for Beowulf, his chainmail held, and he wasn't completely eviscerated in seconds. Unfortunately for Beowulf, each stab still hit him with thousands of pounds of pressure. He cried out as he felt his bones break, muscles tear, and his body recoil from what felt like a horse kicking him in the torso. Dozens of times, he could feel his body beginning to break. This really was not how he thought this was going to go at all. He would die here if he didn't throw all of his strength into trying something, anything. He saw her knives coming down on him, and he waited, and waited, yelled, and caught one. It bit deep, down to the bone, but he stopped it. His broken bones and burning muscles screamed at him, and he took her hand and twisted it, flipping her off of him and a few feet away. She hit the rocks in the shallow pool, hard. He knew that he couldn't wait. He had to do something. He scrambled up the pile of gold he was laying on, the only direction that was away from the monster who was already getting to her feet. Pain pulsed through his body with every breath as he clawed at the heap of gold coins. He heard Grendel's mother begin to take a few steps and start to run toward him as he climbed away from her. His hand felt something sticking out of Grendel's mother's treasure pile, the handle of a sword. She would be on him in seconds. He didn't even think about it when he gripped the handle and swung the sword in an arc behind him. He was right. She was there. Her claws were out, and she was going for his neck. She wouldn't make the mistake of stabbing at the armor again. But the sword was apparently more magic and more legendary than Unferth's. It cut through Grendel's mother's outstretched claw and then through her neck. Her head flew from her body and rolled to the ground, while her body kept moving and came to a rest on top of Beowulf. Beowulf, wide-eyed, pained and covered in blood, could not believe that worked. And yeah, that's it for the fight. Beowulf found a magic sword and cut off her head. She's dead, Jim. Okay, I don't know how many evil monsters that have been alive since the time of Cain and Abel I have listening to this podcast, but if you have magic swords sticking out of your no doubt legally and ethically obtained treasure piles, I don't mean to tell you how to do your job, but make me throw that up on Craigslist before the hero comes around. It'll make your life a lot easier and longer. As soon as Grendel's mother was dead, 
fires burn to life all around the underground cave, warming and lighting it. If that doesn't make sense to you, don't worry, because the top of the lake bubbled with blood for Hrothgar and all the people keeping the lookout for Beowulf to see, and it purged all the evil creatures from the lake. So hopefully that clears some stuff up for you. Down in the cave, Beowulf sat in the dank, stinking cavern, and he saw the piles of riches, Grendel's mother's horrible corpse, and something off behind the treasure pile. Beowulf limped over, and he knew what it was. It was Grendel. Mortally wounded, he had made his way back to his mother. Beowulf could see that what Grendel's mother had done was because of her son. She was sad. She was mourning him, and hurt. She had lashed out. Beowulf shrugged. It might have been sad that she missed her son and was mourning for him and all that, but if she wanted her son to live, maybe she could have helped him develop some hobbies other than killing Danes by the dozen. Beowulf didn't have any sympathy for the monster, but he knew someone who would want a trophy of Grendel. Beowulf took the sword that he had used to kill Grendel's mother, which we should talk about. It's massive, and it was forged in the time of giants, before a flood destroyed them. I can't tell if this was the blood ocean that drowned the giants of Norse mythology, or if this was the biblical flood. Regardless, it was a big, old, magic sword from the time of giants. But none of that matters. Beowulf used the sword to hack off Grendel's head, to take it with him as a trophy. But as Beowulf hacked at Grendel's corpse's neck, the blood came out and melted the sword. Because of course Grendel has sword-melting poison blood. I mean, who doesn't? Beowulf painfully dragged the head to the pool in the center, where Grendel's mother had come from, and he took one last look around the cavern. He saw a way out of the pool, took a deep breath, and started swimming for the surface, with Grendel's head in tow. Now, for this episode, I did a lot of research on all the bad things that can happen to you. If you swim for what has to be tens of thousands of feet straight down, took a deep breath, and made your way right back to the surface. I did all this research like it mattered at all. Let's just say Beowulf did remember to exhale all the way up, and he just flexed all of those nitrogen bubbles right out of his blood with his legendary muscles. Also, for some context, modern day scuba divers can only go a few hundred feet, and even then it can get pretty dangerous. So, not the several hundred or several thousand feet that Beowulf went. It could be that Beowulf only went a short distance down, and he was combing the bottom of the lake for Grendel's mother, or that he swam straight down for 14 plus hours. It really doesn't make sense to try to make it realistic. A lot of impossible things are going on. At 3pm, a full 30 hours after he dove into the lake, the Danes and the Geats waiting on the cliff's edge saw something on the shore. It was a warrior, wrapped in mail, with an impractical gold helmet. Next to it sat something that looked like a scary, hairy beach ball. The Danes and the Geats rushed to Beowulf to find him alive but exhausted. They took his armor and chainmail from him and helped him to the tents. It took him just a few hours to recover, but Beowulf rode in glory, wincing at the horses every step from his many broken bones as they went to present the head to King Rothgar. Four people had to carry the massive thing, but it was done, and neither Grendel nor his mother would ever threaten the Danes again. There was a big party, and Hrothgar honored Beowulf and all that. We don't really need to go into it. But Hrothgar thanked Beowulf, and as the pair parted, Hrothgar told him to not put his faith in earthly things, like riches or power, or even his own strength, because they would all fade someday. Beowulf would need to be good to his people. The pair said goodbye, and Beowulf and his eleven companions made their way back to Geatland, or kind of modern-day Sweden, across the waters.
Over 50 years later, Beowulf sat atop his horse and looked out on the waters. As the Gidish king, he was followed everywhere by retainers and servants and warriors. Still, he liked to get out and look upon the waters and remember the times when he had been a young man, out exploring the world, tearing arms off of demons and beating up their moms. He sighed, good times. Not that these weren't good times, they were. By any metric, Beowulf had been a phenomenal king and that might have been because he never expected to become one. He wasn't from a line of kings and he had served both of the previous ones as best he could, but that hadn't stopped them from dying. When he came home from Denmark and he gave his treasure to the king, then a young man, he told everyone the story of Grendel and his mother. The king honored him with a title and tracts of land, and Beowulf became one of his most trusted friends. So trusted, in fact, that the king approached Beowulf one day. There had been more and more problems with their neighbors, the Swedes. Real quickly, when I say the Swedes, I'm referring to the medieval Germanic tribe, not the citizens of the modern country, Sweden. Geatland was just one kingdom and region of what makes up modern day Sweden. Anyway, they battled the Swedes for years, but it was getting worse. Beowulf was the greatest hero in Geatland, and one day the king called his champion to him. The king said that if anything should ever happen to the king, who definitely still has so many great years ahead of him, and isn't dooming himself with this very conversation, then the king would like Beowulf to be the steward of Geatland, until the prince, still a young boy, came of age. Beowulf said he would be honored, but that wouldn't be necessary the king would live to a ripe old age. Cut to two weeks later, where the king is on the funeral pyre after being killed in battle against the Swedes. Beowulf was a good steward and looked after the young king. Unfortunately, he was not a good enough steward to keep the young man from dying in a duel with the Swedes when he came of age, but he was good enough to avenge the young man and hold off the Swedes. After the young king died, everyone agreed that the steward, Beowulf, should become the king, and he did. And that was 50 years ago, almost exactly, which which, given a fairly conservative estimate of 10 years between his return from Denmark and another really conservative estimate of 20 for his age when he killed Grendel, then Beowulf had to be at least 80. For decades, he hadn't lived the life of a wandering adventurer, but of a king of his people in a dangerous world. Even though he was getting up there in age, he tried to avoid the thought of dying. He knew he wouldn't live forever, and since he had never married or had any children, he would need to find an heir, and every day he put off doing so. His people got closer and closer to the precipice. The enemies of the Geats knew Beowulf was old, and they were waiting, salivating, just outside of Beowulf's realms, for the day the legendary hero turned king breathed his last. Beowulf, though he was well over 80, wasn't worried about dying of old age. Old age worries about dying of Beowulf, which doesn't make sense. Besides, Beowulf was Beowulf. If he was going to die, it wouldn't be in his bed or on the throne. He would perish in an epic battle with a giant or a troll or a dra- That was when he heard it. The screaming, the roaring, and the buildings erupting in flames. It came from the direction of his meat hall, his home. They were under attack, and from the sound of it, it was big. He didn't wait, but turned, and rode for whatever fresh horror the world had decided to throw at him. Next week, we'll see what was attacking his home, though a lot of you already know it, and we'll wrap up the story of Beowulf. And for the hundreds of people that have emailed me begging for stories of octogenarians fighting monsters, next week is your week. I want to say thanks to Marksman1122, A Star to Die For, Kitty Moss, Keith So Sexy, 
Gfunkification, Cheeseherd, hashtag yes, The Duchess, Sean1234675893837, Robbie9292, Ocean Nico, Crazy Carl8 for you, Dicey, Biltrex, Ella Bella, Gamer Sauce, and I Like Knowing Stuff for the reviews on iTunes. Thank you all so, so much. I really appreciate it. And if you'd like to leave a review, iTunes is the best place. You can find the show there at itunes.mythpodcast.com. And there's also a membership thing on the site. You can get extra episodes, source pack ebooks, and ad-free versions of the show for less than the price of a boogeyman egg separator. It's a mug that looks like the face of a man with a cold, and you use it to separate egg whites. They, of course, drip out of his nose, looking like snot. I linked it in the show notes. If you're interested in the membership that, sadly, won't help you make egg whites and then never want to eat them again, check out support.mythpodcast.com. The creature this week is the Baku from Japanese folklore. I want to thank Ilsa, a listener, for reaching out with this creature. At creation, the gods looked on everything and thought it looked pretty good. Then they checked the list again. They forgot something. The Baku. Everyone had gone home so they couldn't fire up the machines again. Oh, I know, one god said, and rolled out the bins of all the other animal parts that had been left over. He was sure they could make something work from this. And whether it was the end of the day and they were just throwing stuff together, whether they wanted to get creative, they finally landed on a creature with the body of a bear, the head of an elephant, the eyes of a rhinoceros, the tail of an ox, and the legs of a tiger. They looked on it, and even though it was kind of a gross little animal assembled from all the leftovers, it was actually so ugly it was kind of cute. And it was really sweet too, which was good because of what it needed to do. You see, the Baku watches you sleep at night, but in a good way, if there is a good way. It will eat your nightmares, which is actually really cool of it. In fact, when you wake up after a bad dream, you want to say, Baku-san, come eat my dream, three times, and Baku-san will come eat your nightmare. The thing is, you only really want to do this if it's an especially bad nightmare, because if Mr. Baku is still hungry, he will look for something else in the room to eat. Don't worry, he's still a good creature and will not eat you, just all of your hopes and dreams, leaving you a sad shell of a human being with an empty, unfulfilling life, which is better? I've read that in some places in Japanese folklore, it's believed that bad dreams are caused by bad spirits, and certain bad dreams have certain spirits associated with them. I've also read that people sleep with Baku talismans under their pillow to ward off evil spirits and bad dreams, and that certain temples have images of Baku to ward off the evil spirits that seem to always attack temples in Japan. For proof, see all but one episode on this podcast with a temple in Japan. In some depictions, they look like an animal, a taper, and depictions of the Baku range from the bargain bin chimera I mentioned at the top of the segment to just a jovial little pig-like beast with a paunch. And yes, as I was writing this, I just realized that Drowsy from Pokemon was based on the Baku, given its taper-like form and the fact that it uses the move Dream Eater. Anyway, the Baku originated from Chinese mythology, where it was not a nightmare eater, but it did help you have nice dreams. For that version, you didn't so much ask the portly and friendly little spirit taper for help, but kill it, skin it, and use its skin as a comforter. Far be it for me to say which one is the right one, but it's probably not a good idea to murder and skin a mythological creature for a comforter that may or may not give you good dreams, especially if its friends are around and can eat all your hopes and dreams and still be hungry for more. That's it for this week. The theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. 
There are links to other music in the show notes. And thanks again to Random House and Lincoln and the Bardo for sponsoring this episode. From George Saunders, New York Times bestselling author of 10th of December, comes Lincoln and the Bardo, his long-awaited first novel, featuring none other than Abraham Lincoln. A moving father and son story, Lincoln and the Bardo breaks free of its historical framework into a supernatural realm both hilarious and terrifying. It's on sale now, published by Random House, and available wherever books are sold. All right? That's it. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next time. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.